A vital part of any professional asana teacher's repertoire of skills is their ability to put together sequences of poses that are intelligent, effective, varied, and interesting, and which leave the practitioners who come to these classes feeling satisfied and enriched through repeated experiences of authentic yoga practice. When I first taught teacher trainings, the company I worked for had a lot of rules about how a class sequence should be. Dozens and dozens of rules about what should go where and what should be included. But for each of those rules that we were drilling into the heads of aspiring teachers, there were a lot of exceptions that were made in the actual real world of teaching. And that was a problem for me. Why teach rules if they're almost all broken by experienced teachers? One of the things that I think sets the methodology I teach, much of which I learned from my teacher Mati, apart from a lot of other yoga teacher training content, is that I seek to teach my trainees how to think for themselves. Instead of imposing a bunch of rules that they'll break when they know how to, I wanted to come up with a framework that they could use to make their own decisions from the very beginning of their teaching career all the way to the end. So to that end, I created a simple process for sequencing any type of asana class that gives just enough structure to satisfy the desired outcomes that exist for most asana classes, but also allows enormous freedom and creativity to have infinite other types of outcomes. I knew I was onto something when I started showing this structured process to other experienced asana teachers. And they would almost always say to me, after having a look at it, oh yeah, that's pretty much what I do in my head when I sequence my classes. So this week's podcast is about a seven-step process for creating great class sequences. This is the My Yoga Practice podcast. I'm James Brown, and I've been teaching yoga practice and how to teach it to people all over the world for over 20 years. In this podcast, I'm sharing with you the most important things about teaching that I've learned along the way. Yoga practice is to be tailored to the individual, yet it tends to be taught with a one-size-fits-all approach to people with different needs and abilities. In this podcast series, learn specific teaching strategies that allow each student in your classes to make the practice their own. In earlier episodes of this podcast, the concept of desired outcomes was introduced. You might teach any one pose in a million different ways, depending upon what you're after in a given situation. One of the most important factors to consider when choosing a desired outcome for a pose is how that pose fits into the sequence that you're teaching. Having a carefully, skillfully constructed sequence tells you what the desired outcome should be for each individual instruction, each individual pose, each section of the class, and the overall class experience. Now, the most important thing that we do in a yoga class is practice yoga. So we want to construct sequences that require the practitioner to focus the mind, because recall from the earlier episode that that is how Patanjali defines his technique of practice, that it's an attempt to focus the mind. So in our classes, we want that to be the universal desired outcome. In this sequencing methodology, the way that we ensure that happens is to try to choose things to do that the practitioner can only do if they're paying close attention. One way to do that is by taking them near or to the end range of their ability. 
For that reason, this methodology is based on teaching things that are challenging in one of the three ways that were previously mentioned as limiting factors or types of challenge in asana. Remember, we can get students to focus by taking them to or near the end range of their ability in terms of their limitations in muscular strength, their limitations in range of motion, or their limitations in knowledge and skill. That's, those are important factors to consider when you approach this sequencing methodology. A reminder though about challenge, about making things challenging as a means to ensure that the mind is required to focus. It's not required in your classes to always be doing this. Not all practice has to be difficult. There are times when some or all of what happens in a class should be very easy. This methodology is provided as a means to get the student to focus, but it doesn't have to be employed at all times. Nowhere in the sutras does it say, always practice. Based on that idea to keep things interesting by making them challenging, classes that are constructed using this methodology are sequenced toward what we will call a peak pose. That means that the first thing you'll do when you begin to create a class sequence is that you'll choose the pose that will require the most preparation. Then you'll create a sequence built on that because that preparation will require that the practitioner focuses. In this methodology, there's another important requirement. In addition to sequencing for a peak pose that we want to satisfy in any public yoga asana class, and that is to make it well-rounded. Let's look at what that means. In a well-rounded yoga class, all of the body's joints move in their full available range of motion so that we address the three limiting factors in asana and help bring the body to optimal functionality. Also in a well-rounded class, the class has a clear beginning, middle, and end. There's a warm-up where cognitive and range of motion components, we'll talk about that in a moment, of the peak are addressed. There's an energetic climax to the class. And there's a cool-down that leads to a satisfying and still shavasana or corpse pose. The end result will be that the practitioner leaves the class feeling better than they did when they arrived and that they may have learned something as well. And you have learned that the outcomes of teaching this methodology include that we want to make the body stronger where it needs to be stronger for injury-free optimal functionality. We want to make the body more open where it needs to be more open for injury-free optimal functionality. We want to teach the practitioner more about how to use the body for injury-free optimal functionality. And we want to benefit the practitioner by repeatedly focusing the mind, the process that defines Patanjali's form of yoga practice. Now let's start to look at an overview of the seven-step process of sequencing that the rest of this episode will teach you in detail. Step one is to choose a peak pose. Step two is to identify component parts of your peak pose. Step three is to identify poses for each of those component parts. Step four is to put them into order. Step five is to add necessary counter poses, which we'll discuss later, including why you've chosen them. Step six is to add poses to make the class well-rounded, including why you've chosen them. And then step seven is to prepare to change any or all of this when you get to class. Step one is to choose a peak pose. The peak pose is the pose in a class sequence that requires the most preparation in order to do it safely and effectively. 
Consider the three types of limitation in asana, strength, range of motion, or skill. In the context of one single class, we can't make a person more strong. We can take people to the physical limits that their muscular strength will allow, thereby increasing strength as needed over time. So when we talk about preparing a person for a peak pose, we know that we can't, in the context of a single class, make a person stronger. However, we can increase range of motion in a particular joint or area of the body in one class, and we can certainly increase the student's knowledge or skill in one class. So when we set about choosing a peak pose, we seek to choose a pose that you can expect will require, from most of the people that come to whichever class you're preparing, substantial preparation in terms of increasing range of motion and or knowledge and skill in that class before the peak pose. In terms of building strength, that's done over time. A well-chosen peak is key to creating a successful class sequence, but choosing a good peak isn't as easy as it would seem. There are a number of important parameters to consider, and they include, first, the skill level of the practitioners you expect. Choose something that will be challenging so that there is a likelihood that you'll be teaching the students about something they don't yet understand, can't yet do, or have not yet mastered. But don't make it too hard either. Avoid that awkward moment when you get to the peak and nobody in the class can approach trying it. Next, consider the time of day. The time of day may affect focus and range of motion. If you're teaching in the morning, students tend to be physically tighter, but more able to focus. And early morning students tend to be more disciplined students who attend more regularly and are more interested in learning than their later day counterparts. Later in the day, students tend to be physically more open, more interested in movement, but take a little more skill to get focused and to go inward. Also, consider what else you've been teaching to this group. Balance mixing things up with repeating that which bears repetition. If you're planning for a class that you teach regularly, it's helpful for you to keep track of what you have taught and when you taught it. Balance mixing things up with repeating things that bear repetition. Finally, and this might be the most important one, teach only what you know well. For you to excel teaching unique individuals all in one group together, something as necessarily customizable as asana, you really have to know your stuff or it just won't work. Aristotle is often quoted to have said, teaching is the highest form of understanding. And it very definitely applies to teaching asana. In a real-world teaching environment, you will encounter many surprises with regard to the bodies, attitudes, and skill levels that are presented to you as a teacher every day. No two students are alike. For you to excel teaching unique individuals all in one group together, something as necessarily customizable as asana, you really have to know your stuff about what you're teaching or it just won't work. So for this example, in our step one, let's choose the pose Warrior 2, Virabhadrasana 2. That's a great peak pose for a beginning level yoga class. Step two is where we identify the component parts of your peak pose. One way to look at the whole process of preparing a student for a peak pose is that by the time the student gets to that pose, 
they already know the components so well that you, the teacher, could almost leave the room and the students would be able to safely and effectively work at their level, either doing the peak pose or knowing why not to do it, and in that case, what to do instead. Of course you won't leave, but it's a great way to build an effective lead up to the peak. To prepare for the peak, we're going to divide the component parts of the peak pose into two categories, cognitive components and range of motion components. Cognitive components are the things that you teach to the student. Changeable range of motion components are restricted to things which, for many of the students, need to observably, physically change between the time they walk into the class and before the peak pose happens. Cognitive components are the things you teach to the student. Learning means the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experiences, and the senses. Cognitive components almost always have something to do with physical effort, but not always. A cognitive component having to do with physical effort may be something like pressing through the hands evenly in downward facing dog. Cognitive components are usually things that most injury-free students are capable of doing, but they often need to be taught or reminded to do it. Changeable range of motion components are restricted to things which, for many of the students, need to physically change before the peak pose. Not many of the components will be listed here because there's not a lot of opportunity for actual visible physical change to occur in the 45 to 60 minutes between the beginning of the class and the peak pose. In Downward Facing Dog, while pressing evenly through the hands would fall under the cognitive list of components, something like opening the wrists in extension, that's the name of the position the wrists are in Downward Dog, that would be a changeable range of motion component that may be necessary for some students to have happen before they get to a peak where a large degree of wrist extension is necessary, like upward bow pose or handstand. Here's another example. Lotus pose, Padmasana, is an asana that calls for a great degree of lateral hip rotation. Forcing the pose without openness in that direction is very risky to the knee because the knee will rotate injuriously if the foot is forced beyond the limitation that the hip allows. Having the student understand how to know where the physical limitation for their hip is would be a very important cognitive component. Actually increasing that range before lotus pose with other easier and safer lateral hip rotations would be a very important changeable range of motion component. Actually increasing that range before lotus pose with other easier and safer lateral hip rotations like thread the needle on the back are the types of things that we're talking about. So let's say that we chose in step one, Virabhadrasana two, warrior two, as our peak pose. For that, the cognitive components that I would list here in step two would be to teach the student back leg hip abduction, to keep the sit bones equally distant from the floor so that the two sides of the waist are the same length. So how do they make that happen? would be a cognitive component. Keeping the back leg completely straight would be a cognitive component. Teaching how to use the transverse abdominis to lengthen the spine upward would be a cognitive component. Having shoulder abduction, that's with the arms out to the sides, without excess, excessive scapular elevation, without lifting the shoulder blades excessively. 
would be a cognitive component. The muscular effort in the core for the slight rotation of the spine that happens in this pose would be cognitive. And then maintaining the lift of the inner arch of the back foot would be a cognitive component. So these are all things that a person would have to learn how to do or know to do them. They're probably physically able to do all of these things when they walk into the class, but until you teach them, they don't know to do them or how. Where does the effort come from? Now, for Warrior Two, changeable range of motion components, the only one that I have listed is to increase lateral hip rotation, that's what the front leg is doing, with 90 degrees of knee flexion and 90 degrees of hip flexion. So that what that front leg hip is doing is something that for most people to do it really well, there needs to be some opening of the hips. So that's the only component where we actually want to physically change the range of motion of many people's hips before the class starts. Now that was a lot of information about Warrior Two. Just know that you can go to the website episode page and be linked there to uh, many videos that are available to you on this class sequencing methodology. So you don't have to remember everything. Step three is where we identify poses for each component part. Once you've completed step two, you've got a clear set of objectives for the sequence. You know what you've got to do. Step three is where you start to plan how you will do it. Using your list of component parts as a starting point, choose asanas, including variations and prop usage, that you think will work well to teach or accomplish what each component part is all about. There are many ways to teach any component part well. Most of the things you want to accomplish can be done with the shapes that are generally referred to these days as yoga poses, but you might do other things that are different. What's most important is that it works and that you understand why it works. Because if you don't understand it, you can't teach it. When you do this step, include notes to yourself about using props, walls, variations that will reinforce what you're doing or teaching, why you're doing that pose. Now making these notes to yourself about how you'll accomplish your desired outcome is different from options and variations that you might give students that can't do the full thing or that are injured or something like that. You shouldn't need to make notes for that. These are notes about how you're going to achieve the desired outcome of preparing that cognitive or changeable range of motion component with the poses that you're choosing in this step. Remember the components we listed in the last step. Each of them has a desired outcome, whether it's to open something or to educate it. So in this step, in summary, choose poses that will help to get to those desired outcomes. One component part at a time, choose the poses. And remember, you can see on the podcast episode page the poses that I've chosen for this example. Step four is where you put the poses in order. Now that you've got a list of all the poses that you'll use to prepare for the peak pose, in step four, you'll put those poses you've chosen into an order that makes sense to you. If it doesn't make sense to you, you won't teach it well. 
So only drawing from your list of component prepping asanas that you've chosen, order your poses from the ones that you'll teach earliest in the class up until the peak. Often, but not always, this means going from easier to harder. Often, but not always, this also means placing things where the focus is on one component at a time first, then moving toward more complex poses where more than one component of your peak is happening at a time. So it gets closer and closer to being like the peak pose. But what matters most is that you know what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. It must make sense to you. Also, consider when you put things in order the flow of the class in terms of being on the floor, standing, or being at the wall. You don't want to be moving people from one setting to another over and over. Do floor stuff together, wall stuff together. A typical flow in many of the classes I taught was that we would start on the floor, we would build two repeated sun salutations, then we would do standing poses, then we would come to the wall for some kind of peak that required the wall, and then back to the center of the room to the floor for the cool down and shavasana. That's how I often did it, but there are many, many other ways to do it well. Just have a flow to your classes. And as you do this, keep in mind your class is not yet well-rounded or finished. We're still only focused on our peak and we've only added and ordered poses that build toward that peak. In step five, we add necessary counter poses, including why you've chosen them. So a counter pose is a pose that neutralizes a joint or an area of the body after, if, it has gone in an extreme direction. So they're not always required. We're not always going to add poses in this step. In this step, you ask yourself, does the peak need counter poses? If so, you put the counter poses in your sequence after whatever it is that you've done that needs them. And they don't always have to come immediately after. It depends on the pose and what your class is like. But when you add these poses, you want to include in your notes why you've chosen them so that when you do them, you achieve the desired outcome for which you put them into your sequence. So about counter poses, the types of poses that need them most are big backbends and inversions where there's weight on the neck, like shoulder stand or headstand. Backbends can be neutralized with twists and seated forward bends, among other things, and inversions like headstand can be neutralized with poses like downward facing dog and child's pose. Inversions like shoulder stand, where the neck is in flexion, can be neutralized with poses where the neck is in some extension, like fish pose, or in a simple twist lying on the back. Know that this is not an exact science, but since you're only teaching things that you know well, you will know whether or not what you're teaching needs a counterpose. If you're not sure, you probably shouldn't be teaching it. So thus far, we've talked about having a sequence that leads to warrior two. And in this case, we don't really move the body into any extreme direction. So it's not in dire need of a counterpose, but the hip is in the position of lateral rotation and abduction quite a few times in the sequence as we have it so far. So just to be safe and to make the class end with all of the students of all body types and abilities feeling well, we can add a pose here with medial rotation and adduction of the hip 
the opposite of what we've been doing. And counterposes aren't always opposites, by the way. They just need to neutralize the joint. But in this case, they're opposites of what we've been doing. So a pose that we could choose that has medial rotation of the hip and adduction of the hip could be gomukhasana, cow face pose, or something more accessible we could do is Supta Parangustasana 3, which is lying on the back, reclined big toe pose 3, where one hip is in medial rotation, the opposite of warrior 2, and the other hip adducts, also the opposite of what you've been doing to prepare for warrior 2. So step 5, adding necessary counterposes if they're necessary, where you would put them, and notes to yourself about how you'll teach them to achieve your desired outcome. Step six of our seven-step process is to add poses to make the class well-rounded and include notes about why you've chosen them. So public class attendees tend to come for a well-rounded class. So what makes a well-rounded class? There are lots of ways that you can define this. We'll stick to two major elements of what I consider to be a well-rounded class. So one thing to strive for if you want to teach well-rounded classes is that all body parts move in all available range of motion. This is not always possible but you can definitely move all of the major joints into their full range of motion if you do this step carefully. Another element of a well-rounded class is that the energy and pace of the class builds, climaxes, and descends. When you set your desired outcome to teach a well-rounded class, one of the ways that you know you've succeeded is that the students have a very good still shavasana because you've taken care of their nervous systems. You've left them satisfied and calm. For this sequence, where we have thus far only prepared the students for warrior two, and we've done a single counterpose after that, some poses you might add in this step to make it well-rounded are cat-cow pose, because that provides spinal flexion and extension and wrist extension, none of which we will have done preparing for warrior two. You can add downward facing dog that also provides wrist extension and it's a mild inversion. The head is under the heart when you're in it. You could do Padahastasana, that's the standing forward bend where the hands are under the feet. This provides wrist flexion, which we will not have done yet in this sequence. There's Setu Bandhasharbhangasana, bridge pose. That provides shoulder extension, which we will have not have done yet in this sequence and uh, spinal extension as well, which we did in Cat-Cow, but not in our prep for Warrior Two. Purvottanasana, which is stretch of the front of the body, is also shoulder extension. Our sequence before we got to this step had no shoulder extension, and shoulder extension is very important. That's where you take the arms behind the body. Two more poses, one Bardvajasana, or sage twist. This is a twist, so it's spinal rotation, uh, which we have done a little bit in Warrior Two, and preparing for it. But this is a bigger twist for the spine, which is good for it. But it also counterposes the back bends that we have just now added. And then finally, hugging the knees to the chest and taking an easy twist to each side. 
and then shavasana and corpse pose are uh, are added to make the class well-rounded in terms of an energetic uh, energetic sort of denouement to the end of the class. And remember that you can see this sequence that I'm discussing and the seven steps of this process on the episode page on the website myyogapractice.com. You also can link there to eight video lessons that cover what is covered in this podcast episode. Step seven is to prepare to change any or all of this when you get to class. So the actual class that you teach is rarely, if ever, exactly as you planned it. After step six, you will have a final, carefully and thoughtfully crafted final sequence. You will have worked hard to write and understand this sequence. But guess what? You probably won't teach it exactly like you've planned it when you get to class. And it took you a very long time to write. When you do this on your own, following all these steps, you'll be amazed at how long it takes the first few times. It may take many times longer to write it than the class actually will be. So then why do this long prep if you're not going to teach it? Well, consider plan making as honing your skill to turn on a dime when teaching. When you're sitting at home making your plan, you're in a situation that has much less stress because there is far less risk. When you're teaching, you have real live people in front of you, all with different histories, different motivations, different types of knowledge and skill, and you're at work. And they all want you to give them a good yoga class. So standing in front of a group of people who expect you to teach them a yoga practice is not the time to start to figure out what to do. So figure it out ahead of time. What you're doing when you make these dozens of decisions ahead of time is that you're getting good at weighing your options and making good decisions. Even though you'll not make the same decisions while you're teaching real life people, by planning, by doing these steps with great care and thoroughness, you're getting very good at weighing options and making decisions. So do it, please. Do it over and over and over. Do it before every class that you teach until you know that you're good at it. Then keep doing it. I still do it. I always write sequences before I teach. One of the best things about teaching yoga is that it never, ever gets boring if you do it in this way. Because you're acknowledging that life is not scripted. You can write a script, but life cannot be planned. You're using that understanding of the accidental nature of life to motivate you to become very skilled at teaching what is in front of you and taking the best action that you can based on what you see and what you know. By planning ahead, you are preparing yourself to be in that moment, to be here now at every moment. And that is what skilled yoga teachers do. Be a skilled yoga teacher. You can see eight short videos that go into detail about this process and that take you through the construction of a class sequence using it on the online education platform at myyogapractice.com. And on the episode page for this podcast, you can also see the seven-step process written out. 
There you can also access resources for teachers and practitioners of modern postural yoga, including over 100 video lessons that exist to help teachers teach yoga better. And you can also learn about and book private long-distance mentorship sessions for teachers with me. Please rate, review, subscribe to, and share the My Yoga Practice podcast. Thank you for listening.